It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. According to today's guest, Dr. Chatterjee, half of all American adults suffer with a chronic disease, with one in four people suffering from two or more. Despite the epidemic rates of lifestyle diseases, we're confused about what we can do to protect ourselves and live long, healthy lives. Dr. Chatterjee joins us today to discuss his plan for a life free of disease. Dr. Chatterjee is a practicing physician and star of the BBC One TV show, Doctor in the House. He is a member of the Royal Colleges of Physicians and the Institute of Functional Medicine. Welcome, Dr. Chatterjee. Thank you so much for joining us. Jane, it's a real pleasure to be on your show. So, Doctor, what conditions would fall under the category of lifestyle diseases? Joan, I think that's a great question. I think most people associate lifestyle-driven diseases with things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. But what we're learning more and more is that so many of the different conditions we see whether it's mental health problems like depression and anxiety, whether it's autoimmune problems, whether it's gut problems, headaches, migraines, basically the bulk of what I see as a practicing medical doctor in some way is related to our collective modern lifestyles. Now, I've got to be careful. What I'm not saying is that people are doing it to themselves. I'm just saying that in the 21st century, there is an increasing... that, you know, there's an increasing awareness that actually there's a, that mismatch between our genetic heritage and our modern environment. And that mismatch is at the heart of many of the different diseases and complaints that we're now suffering from. So, Doctor, with the understanding that there's always a place for medication, and, and what I'm about to say does not in any way say people should not be taking meds, but these are conditions for which most people take medication. These are conditions that we have more power over than we believe we do. Is that true? Absolutely. Look, I prescribe pharmaceutical medication, you know, pretty much every day as a doctor, you know. I'm not saying that there is no need for that. What I am saying is that we are over-prescribing pharmaceutical medication and we're not giving a lot of our patients the right choices, the right options, so that they can actually choose to make some changes in their lifestyle if they wish. Now, you mentioned in the intro that I have um, got my own television series called Doctor in the House, which is a BBC show that was showed in the UK but also has gone around the country. uh, Sorry, it's got around the world and what I managed to show in this documentary series is that for a whole variety of different conditions, whether it's type 2 diabetes, whether it's panic attacks, anxiety, fibromyalgia, insomnia, gut problems, all kinds of different conditions, that by making small changes to four key areas of our lifestyle, we can certainly improve people's health 
And in some cases, we managed to reverse their condition. Like I managed to demonstrate that type 2 diabetes can be reversed, sometimes within 30 days, by making those lifestyle changes. I also showed that actually a condition such as fibromyalgia, which had been under doctors for years, and this lady I saw was on 20 different pills every single day. Again, within six weeks, she was pain-free, and a few months later, instead of taking 20 pills a day, she's only taking two pills a day. So, you know, I'm very passionate that actually there is so much that we can do with our lifestyle, but as you have already highlighted, one of the problems is that health has become overcomplicated. And so what I try and do in my approach, I actually simplify health down to four key areas. And these areas are what I call the pillars of health, the four pillars of health that we've got some degree of control over that has the most impact on the way that we feel. Food and movement, which everyone has been talking about for years, but also sleep and relaxation. And I think those final two pillars are pillars that people very much undervalue, both doctors and the public alike. And I, I sort of walk people through in the book of the variety of changes you can make in these areas and that the, the amount of different conditions that can start to get better. Doctor, let's look at these four areas for a moment and talk briefly about each. So relaxation, what strategies do you believe make the most difference? Joan, we're living in a busy, busy world. I mean, many of us are stressed out from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to bed. You know, we wake up, we look at our phones, uh, we've got a, a barrage of noise coming in, emails, tweets, Facebook messages, Instagram posts. And for many of us, that, that continues all day. And we are just busy. And actually, this is having a negative impact on our health because when we're this busy and this stressed out, what happens is we raise levels of stress hormones such as cortisol and adrenaline in our body, and they can have quite a negative impact on many different systems in the body, including our ability to lose weight. There's so many patients I see that actually it's not diet and movement they need. What they need is to manage their stress levels because when we're chronically stressed, you know, our body feels like it's under attack, and, and it comes up with a strategy to deal with that. And one of the strategies is it will hold on to weight. So, you know, what are some of my top strategies to help us de-stress? I and mean, they sound rather simple. One of them is 15 minutes of me time every day. So this is something that you do by yourself. You do it because you enjoy it and you do it without a screen. And this can be something as simple as just enjoying a cup of coffee. But the goal is not to be scrolling your screen, looking at your emails and your Facebook at the same time. So that's one strategy I, I, I sort of recommend. The other strategy I, I recommend is something called a practice, a daily practice of stillness. So, you know, the, the, the words meditation and mindfulness are all the rage these days. And I think, you know, I'm a huge fan of both of them, but sometimes those terms can confuse people. Basically, what we're talking about is, is a practice every day where you have a little bit of stillness. That can be meditation, and there are some great apps. You know, my personal favorite is the Calm app, uh, but there are so many other ones out there for, that people can choose from. Um, but you know what? Listening to music can be a meditation. You know, even just sitting there with your eyes closed for 10 minutes, listening to your favorite bit of music, you know, if you lose yourself in the music, that can be a meditation as long as you're not doing something else at the same time, like going through your emails, you know, like, like surfing, surfing the net. 
So th those are two strategies that I outline. And, and I guess a third one is this whole idea of a screen-free Sabbath, the whole idea, can we work towards one full day a week where we don't go on screens? And, and I appreciate many people will be listening to this and going, mm -hmm. I said, there's no way I can do that. And, and I, I take a very practical approach. I say, you know what, if one day is too much, try one hour, try two hours, just see what happens. And I walk people through a practical strategy uh, day by day of how they can get to that stage. And one of the top tips for technology is to take notifications off your phone. You don't need to know every time someone likes your latest social media post or, you know, the, the, the next time you get a junk email from someone. You know, we need to use technology in a way that we're in control and that technology doesn't control us. You know, I am not anti-tech. I'm a huge fan. But we've got to start putting in some practices in place where we're in charge. And I think taking notifications off your phone is a big one. So that's really, in a nutshell, uh, relaxation. In, in the book, there are plenty more uh, tips and strategies that I've basically learned from my patients. You know, this book is full of things that it's not what I say is going to work. It's what patients over the last 10, 15 years have told me works in their busy lives. Doctor, how much exercise should we be getting and what kind do you recommend? We all need to move more. We know that as a society we're not moving enough. What do I recommend? So I think it's important to sort of mention here before we go in deep onto movement and exercise is that, you know, my approach is not about prescribing someone exactly what they should be doing. You know, I very much prefer a partnership with my readers, a partnership with my patients and allow them to make those decisions. So, you know, these four pillars that I talk about, in each pillar there are five chapters. Each chapter is a recommendation. And, and I say, look, guys, you're never going to do all 20 of the recommendations. I wouldn't expect anyone to. What I'd like people to do is pick two or three in each pillar and try and implement those strategies into their everyday life. And that's genuinely what I find with my patients. They need to do maybe two or three in each pillar. It's not about the perfect diet. It's not about the perfect exercise and gym routine. You don't need perfection. You just need balance. So when it comes to movement and exercise, my recommendations are, are pretty simple, really. You know, what the first one is um, to sit less and walk more. And I go through some simple strategies as to how you can do that. Many of my patients love the idea of having a fitness tracker and trying to get that 10,000 steps a day. Now, it's, uh, it's important to say there's no magic uh, about, about 10,000, right? It's not as if 10,000 is significantly better than 9,500 or, or better than 11,000. It's just quite a good barometer that we can use to get a little bit more active. But many of my patients also, they're like fitness trackers, and that's fine as well. There are many other strategies that people can use. One thing I think I'm going to highlight, because it's impossible in this interview to go through all of the strategies, is strength training. Now, strength training is incredibly undervalued in society. You know, we, 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 we don't re realize the implications of that. Once we go past 30, the age of 30, we can lose 3 to 5% of our lean muscle mass every 10 years. And above the age of 50, that can go to about 3% each year. Now, you might be wondering why does that matter? Well, the amount of lean muscle mass you have is the strongest predictor of how well you are going to be as you age. It's really that important. And so 
arguably we should be prioritizing muscle mass and strength training in older individuals more than in younger individuals. At the moment, we associate going to the gym with teenagers and people in their 20s trying to look good. But actually, it's, it's more important as we get older. And, and in my book, I talk about something called a five-minute kitchen workout, which is a workout that anybody can do because it can be modified to all ability levels. You don't need any equipment. You don't need to buy anything. You don't need to go to a gym. You don't even need to change your clothes. And, it, and it's a way that I keep fit when I'm on the roads. And I can tell you, I've got patients ranging from 20 years old to 70 years old who are doing this five-minute strength workout. And, and it's incredible. By, by lowering the bar, by, by saying to my patients, hey, look, if you can't get to a gym, that's fine. Start off. Give me five minutes twice a week. You know what happens? They go away. They're normally a little bit skeptical, but they start doing it for five minutes twice a week. And within a month, they've increased it to 10 or 15 minutes, five or six days a week, because I've made it simple and I've made it accessible for them. So I think strength training is something I'm really, really passionate about. Doctor, so many of us are making ourselves crazy following every fad diet that comes out. And, you know, we're, we're losing weight, we're gaining weight. We Just when we think we have it figured out, we're given new information saying, don't eat that, eat this. So if you could sum it up, how do we find that balance in what we eat? What should we be doing every day to maximize our health through food? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. It's a problem in the US, it's a problem in the UK. People are so confused. But you know what? The, the, the principles of healthy eating haven't really changed in a number of years. And I try and sort of walk people through them in my approach. And so I'd say the first one is to denormalize sugar, okay? This is not about saying you're never going to eat sugar again. Frankly, we're hardwired to crave sugar. And in the modern living environment, we're always going to be exposed to it. So at some point, we're always going to crack. You know, I would say, look, I don't mind if people have a sugary treat now and again, but they should know when they're eating sugar. We shouldn't kid ourselves that we're not having sugar in our breakfast cereal, in our sandwich at lunch, and in our pasta and ready-made sauce for dinner. You know, if you start looking at those labels, you'll find pretty soon that actually there's a ton of sugar in that. So, you know, my a big approach with sugar is not to demonize it, but, but to denormalize it. The other approach I'm sort of quite keen on is the idea of can you eat five vegetables every single day and ideally make them different colors? And the way I prioritize that with people is give them a rainbow chart. So I've got that in my book. I give that to patients in my practice. Um, and people love it because it, it gamifies health. And if any of your listeners have actually got children like I do, it's the best way of getting your children to eat more vegetables is by gamifying it and, and having this rainbow chart. So you can look at all healthy populations around the world. And one of the consistent things is they eat minimal sugar. They do eat sugar, actually, but they eat minimal sugar. They eat plenty of brightly colored vegetables every day. And I think the other big one is to unprocess your diet. We know that minimally processed food is associated with better health outcomes. You can look at all these populations, these blue zones around the world, where people live to a ripe old age in really good health. And you know what? Their diet is different. Some are eating more fat, some are eating more carbs. But you know what they're all doing? It's minimally processed food. And, you know, on a side note, one of the reasons I think that low-carbohydrate diets are working so well for so many people in the West, 
because the bulk of the refined and processed junk that we're eating is highly refined and processed carbs. So actually, just by cutting those highly processed foods out, we're automatically improving the health of our diets because it's that kind of diet that actually encourages really good growth of what we call gut bugs. So these trillions of bugs that live inside us, and that can impact your mood, that can impact your weight, your risk of type 2 diabetes, your risk of getting things like Alzheimer's disease, and a whole host of other things. So those are some sort of basic principles. But, you know, we're always so focused on what we should eat, we often don't think about when we should eat. And one of the strategies I talk about is can you eat all of your food in a 12-hour eating window? So, you know, that might be you have your breakfast at 7 a.m. and you've finished eating your dinner by 7 p.m., for example, or 8 till 8 or 9 till 9. It really doesn't matter, but we know that there are some incredible benefits for the body when we restrict our eating to 12 hours. And I can tell you that pretty much every single one of my patients can do that. It often improves their digestion improves their blood sugar levels, their weight, but it can also improve their sleep. So that's a strategy I'd encourage people to listen. If they've struggled to change what they eat, maybe they should start with changing when they eat. And finally, doctor, how many hours of sleep should we get per evening? You know what? The research is conflicting. I can't actually tell anyone what they should be getting per night in terms of hours. But what I can do, and this is the question I ask all of my patients, is do you wake up feeling refreshed? because that's what sleep should be doing. Do you wake up with an alarm? Sorry, do you wake up without an alarm, give or take 30 minutes every day? Because that gives me an idea of your body's natural circadian rhythm. And do you fall asleep within about 30 minutes of trying? And I go through this um, rate questionnaire with my patients that I detail out on the book so that people can assess their own sleep health. And that gives me a great snapshot of what people's sleep quality is like. See, you might be able to sleep for six hours a night and actually wake up feeling refreshed. And I would say that's okay for you. But some other people need eight hours a night. So, you know, I think having a number there can actually be a little bit off-putting for some people. But I can tell you this, right? We are living in a sleep deprivation epidemic. There's no question. And in the short term, a lack of sleep affects our energy, our mood, our relationships with our partner, our family members, our work colleagues as well as actually our ability to make other good, healthy lifestyle choices. But in the long term, sleep deprivation is associated with pretty much every single chronic condition we have, whether it be obesity, type 2 diabetes, heart disease, Alzheimer's. And we're not talking about it. We're always talking about food and movement. And when we're missing a big piece of the puzzle, which is sleep, the vast majority of people who are struggling with their sleep are doing something in their daily lifestyle that they don't realize is negatively impacting their ability to sleep in the evening. You know, in very rare cases, is it what we call a primary sleep disorder, like sleep apnea? In most cases, it's to do with things that they're doing in the day. That could be caffeine, it could be alcohol, it could be that they're on screens before bed, uh, it could be that they go through their bank statements every evening so they can't switch off, it could be that they're doing their work emails in bed. But one that often people don't think about is one of my recommendations, which is embrace morning light. Now, when people think about sleep, they're always thinking about what can I do in the evening before I go to bed? You know, what, what, what can I do to relax? But actually, we know that actually that's not the whole story. See, we've evolved as humans to have a big differential between our maximum light exposure 
and our minimum light exposure. So if, if a dark room, let's say a completely pitch black room, was zero lux, and lux is a unit of light, okay, you go outside on a sunny day, you get exposed to about 30,000 lux, okay, so that's a big difference. You go outside on a cloudy day, you're getting maybe 10 to 15,000 lux. You go into a brightly lit office environment, the maximum you're going to get is about five or 600 lux, okay? So in the modern world, when we're spending a lot of our time indoors, we're not getting that differential. And I've got so many of my patients who, by having a 20-minute walk outside every day or even at lunchtime, okay, that is all they need to do to improve the sleep quality at night because it helps them set their body's natural daily circadian rhythm. The book is How to Make Disease Disappear. If you'd like to get more information about Dr. Chatterjee and his work, you can visit drchatterjee.com. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.